0: Abadi Zainu. Hey, good. Somebody knows Swahili back there. That's nice. I've been asked by Chris to give a bit of a message of our walk. My wife, Cherry, and I and are living overseas in Kenya for a number of years and still trying to stay there as retired folk and how you fit into that. We're going to look at the verses of Scripture today that are Pretty tough. They're scary, whether you're young or old. Matthew 28 19 and 20 says, Go make disciples of all the nations. The word nations there has the idea not of countries so much as tribes, groups, different ethnic groups, but the word there is all. And it's as you go, not as maybe this one, maybe that one. So that's why this is a scary kind of thing, because it suggests something that all of us are responsible for. Maybe some of you are saying, well, good, I'm old enough now, I don't have to consider it. Wrong Some of you are saying, well, you know, I've got a plan and I'm already working on my master's degree and this is God's wrong. It's for all of us. Go and make disciples of the nations, of all the nations. And we're just uncomfortable with it. I like my situation. I feel good about it all. Now, we're not just talking, though, about you and me. We are. There's the idea here of as you are going about, not just as you target 800 miles away. It has to do with who you run into in the shopping center, how your neighbor is treated, someone with a problem that you meet while out walking one day. As you go about your life, you are making disciples. That's the goal. It's scary. It's on all of us. Not just a pastor, not just a team at the church, not just the few of 12 or 15 or 20 that you may know. You as well, if you're a believer. Our job then is to go to the nations, to go to the peoples, and make it where more have a chance to hear where we raise the odds and make it a better chance for everyone to get a piece of the gospel. And as a church, that means we go, we go, and it also means sometimes we send. We make sure that a place is gone to. When we find someone crazy enough and called enough and willing to go, We'll send them to a strange, strange place. I'm going to tell you about a few places like that. You see, this happened to my wife and I some years back. Cherry was raised here in Ruston. We met at Louisiana Tech. I had early on in that freshman year at Tech begun to feel a call the Lord to some kind of ministry. I'd always liked the idea of overseas, but this was a general feeling I had, a call. And as Cherry and I were dating, we discussed these kinds of things, and as we were engaged, we began to to think, what is the future? What do we do? I had a chance to spend uh, three months, one summer, in Malaysia, and, boy, I felt called to go to Asia, somewhere in that area. The next summer, I was in Utah doing a summer missions program. Cherry was at Ridgecrest in North Carolina. Now, this was back in 1963. We didn't have email and all that kind of stuff. I was in Utah. I wrote her a letter, and I said, Cherry, I really feel called to go overseas as a missionary. And I sent that letter knowing it would be four, five, six days before she would get it in North Carolina. You know what? Two days later, I got a letter from her. And it said, Dear Vance, I believe we ought to be going overseas. I'm convinced. We got married and we knew that's what we were going to do. And then we began to think, is it really as missionaries or should we go in business and should we get a job somewhere and we can do mission work overseas that way? So we decided, let's try the Peace Corps. Yes, even the U.S. government can do God's work sometime. They said, we can't put you back in, in, in Asia. That's where we want to go. We gave them a time frame. They said, we have an opening that you can work in Kenya. And we said, gosh, who wants to go to Africa? There was a song famous then, God Don't Send Me to Africa. You know, it told all these terrible things about living in Africa, and we sang it all the time. We decided, okay, we we can learn. We went to a school. We lived at this girls' school. I had to walk two miles to the boys' school where I was teaching right in the middle of Kenya. And we knew that's where God wanted us to be. Came back, finished seminary. But it was a hard, hard time. I was pastoring in Ringo, Louisiana. And little old church, well, not that little, 150 or so in in worship service. It's pretty good size. But we had had hard times in Kenya. Cherry and her sister had gotten married without us. We had had deaths in the family we couldn't get back to. The phone system was absolutely incredibly bad. It was this over and out stuff. And it was just heartbreaking in many ways. And I was ready to go back, but Cherry was not. Now, here I am pastoring a church. I think it's about time for us to go there. And giving the invitation one Sunday morning, I was standing down front, as a good pastor should. And guess what? I see my wife walking down the aisle. Now, that will get your attention. And she just came up, and she took my hand, and she said, Vance, I'm ready to go. We were appointed within three months. By the end of the next summer, we were back in Kenya. This time, we went with the International Mission Board. Our families thought we were crazy. There were people who came up to me and said, Vance, don't you know you can make it in America? Kind of like, you know, you go in there because that's your last chance to survive. We knew that's where God wanted us to be. He had made it quite clear. We had training for four months before going to get us ready because we were going to a people that we didn't know really much about. We had two young children, about six and four years of age. We landed there in Kenya. We jumped into the process of trying to think like Kenyans. Now, one thing you guys don't realize, it's dangerous to have someone like me preaching because in Kenya, you'd never preach less than an hour sermon. If people have walked three miles to come to church, they don't want to get a little old 25-minute sermon. They want to get their money's worth. So they're going to, you know, but I'll I'll try to do the best I can to get through by, say, 1245. It's all right with y'all. Somebody said amen. I don't know. That doesn't sound too good, does it? But we had to learn to think like Kenyans. We had to learn how to greet people. And one time I went into a house and I knew the husband and I'd met him elsewhere. And he had invited me there. And when I got into the little sitting area, this little tiny house, the door opens to the kitchen and the wife comes in on her knees, bringing me a cup of tea, walking on her knees. And that's the way you greeted men. I had to get used to that kind of thing. I had to get used to the fact that you could shake hands with some people in some tribes and you didn't dare touch them if it's in another kind of tribe. We had to get used to sitting with people that were dressed in very, very strange ways. One time I was out in the far bush and I was with a tribe that I didn't know very well and we had an interpreter and we were going. I would speak Swahili and he would speak whatever the local language was there. There were a mix of languages. And the guy sitting next to me that I was really doing most of the talking with, he was not wearing a shirt. He was wearing kind of a wrap around his waist. And uh, he had all of these little marks, one-inch cuts that had healed all over this side of his body, right to the middle of his chest and around. And it was a little odd-looking. There must have been 50 so of these little cuts. And finally, when he walked off, and by the way, he took his thing off when he walked off and walked off naked. We got kind of used to that sort of thing, too. But he walked on off, and I asked this fellow that was there, I said, what does all that mean? He says, one mark for every person he has killed. I'm glad I didn't know it when I sat down by him. But you learn how to kind of get into the group and to see how they feel and begin to speak the language as a person who lives there. You fit in strange foods? Yeah. Sometimes you don't dare ask what it is. You just hold your nose and eat it. Sometimes you eat it and you're glad they didn't tell you two days later what it was. One time, Cherry and I tried to pour out some milk-like curds that they had given us it was in the dark and we were watching a, a movie we had a generator and we're showing the the jesus film and about 200 people sitting on the ground and we were sitting on the ground there and somebody brought us these two little old cups of white creamy awful tasting stuff to drink and so after a little bit i saw this bush you know and i went over and i just kind of dumped mine in the bush and sat back down, and Cherry kind of went over after a few seconds and dumped hers in the bush, and then we realized it was shining in the dark. Everybody knew we had dumped it. Well, we blew it, you know. You do that. But you try to fit in. You try to figure how to get there. You learn the language, and you're going to make mistakes. I mean, I preached a sermon on the teapot Mary. The word for teapot and virgin are just a little different. Bikirda and Birika. And I gave a look, you know, after about saying the teapot Mary five or six times, and my wife kept putting her finger to her nose out there. I didn't, what in the world is she trying to tell me, you know, put your finger to your nose? But you have to learn that language and feel comfortable with it. Why is that? You're really wanting to go to the nation. You're wanting somebody to get what you've got. You want to have a door open. That's what it's about here in this church. We want to fit in enough so that people will listen. Now, you will find every place you go in the world, there will be some people who have just never heard. I went out to one tribe called the Pokot. The Pokot had, as best we could tell, no Christians, at least in the home base of the community. There may have been a few that had gone off to work somewhere, had become Christians that we weren't aware of. But I went in with a translator, and I went in then with a guide to get us back into the middle of nowhere. And I was standing there where we met a man, and he started talking to me, and these were bush people. All of a sudden, we re- I realized there's another person standing there too. And then I began to see, just kind of out of the forest, people were just easing around. And pretty soon, there were a large group of well-armed, simple, nice, pleasant men. And the older one kept asking me questions. And finally, he asked the question, Why are you here? Now, we've got to ask ourselves that question every day as believers. What am I doing here? What's the opportunity? How am I going to raise the odds for someone else here today? But that meant he was ready to sit down. He was ready for me to talk to the whole group. Back off about 60 miles away were the peaks of Mount Kenya, snow-covered. And I began to ask them, where does God live? Yes, on the mountaintop. He is away. He doesn't touch our lives. And it opened the door to speak of, did you not know that God, the high God, had a son who came to live among us here that brings us new life? No. Our mission worked with the Pocot people for a number of years. And now one of our strong churches in Nairobi, Kenya, has taken over the Pocot tribe. They're putting the missionaries in. They're doing the training. We've moved to the next generation of disciples to do that work. So you have some that are unreached. They don't know. You also have some that are immature as Christians. They're kind of mixed up. They believe. Or talk as they believe. But then if you're not careful, especially in Africa, they believe in witch doctors still. They believe in the spirit world and all of the ancestors can come and give advice to you spiritually. They believe that you go and you stand near the grave of your great-grandfather and he speaks to you. I had a friend who had a charm. It had been given to him by a witch doctor when she made him an assistant witch doctor. He became a believer. He was learning. He was growing. And I didn't realize it. He still had the charm in his pocket. She had said, never let the charm leave your body. And he kept wanting to throw it away. and kept wanting to throw it away. And I was unaware of what was going on. And one day in our little Bible study group, he came and he, he said, I've got good news you know, And he told of going out to a reservoir where he had been going so often, wanting to take that thing out of his pocket and throw it in the water. And he finally did. That's that immature one who has to grow. And part of our work is to help people become more mature. And then they tell others, And the story goes. We tell stories in East Africa. Biblical stories right out of the Bible. 30 seconds to a minute, minute and a half long. People learn stories. I can tell stories to a group of three people from a village. And if I go into that village a week later, everybody, 250 people will know that story. So we work at multiplying. Why? To raise the odds. To give everyone a chance to hear To receive the gospel. Get rid of the charms. The ancestors. The spirit world that messes up your growth. Thank you for sending us. Cherry and I were aware that God loves those people. But you made it possible. As Southern Baptists... We give regularly, and at Christmas time we give in a special way, offerings that go to missionaries and support of missionaries and things, paperwork and so forth that gets you caught up in praying for missionaries and for the work around the world. Uh, the International Mission Board has a little over five thousand missionaries around the world. All most all the nations it's a work that you have your hands in just when you're part of this church and I thank you for being so caring for us we landed there two kids there was a house for us to live in they provided a car well it was an old it was a car Uh, I had several interesting experiences you learn to take care of cars when you live there We had enough salary to live on comfortably. Kids' schooling was cared for. Medical care was there. Emergencies were taken care of. Nobody ever said, by the way, you're sick and your family is so sick, we can't afford to fly them out to America where they need special care. No, no. That was never a question. You take care of us. We did not have to come begging we would come home on leave. We could give reports, but we didn't have to go around and kind of weigh out your ability to give personally for anything we needed. No, never. We were well supported because you gave regularly. Now, when you get to Kenya, in most parts of the world, there's a team of missionaries there, and they work with local nationals of Christians And begin to have strategies. What are our people coming going to do? Some will be doing medical work. Some will be running orphanages. Some will start secondary schools. Some will start seminaries. Some will train at this level. Some at that level. Some will have a goat farm. Some will teach people how to raise various crops and how to change their ways of farming. All kinds of things are done because we look at what the needs are and how do we get to those people and what would open them up and then you support it. So that's the International Mission Board. It gets the ball going. I was assigned to train pastors. We started with a program that the Africans weren't sure it could work. They had always thought of school as something you do five days a week, at least. We were having people do three days of study. Hard, intensive study in centers all over the country. And they were continuing in their pastoral ministries. And then we began to get their wives into the program. And then my wife began to set up a pastor's wives program. And so we were often on the move during the week, especially myself. Cherry raised the kids at home. There were schools nearby that were carried, where they could go to regularly. So that was nice, and when she had free time, she would work within 10 or 15 miles of our place, starting churches, witnessing, mainly working with the women. We had our kids tag along to start churches and knock on doors and get a little group going and meet in that little household and slowly watch it grow and find those that we could train to take on the next step of leadership. All of that was sort of our focus. We had people near us that ran a conference center. We had others near us that were doing medical work. We have missionaries that are their career that will spend 25, 30, 35 years. We have retired people that come for two-year projects. They're specialists in certain areas, and they can come. We have young people that come, and they'll do six months or eight months, a special kind of project. They get involved. They can't learn the language that quickly, but they get their hands dirty getting into the work of people. Any sort of potential you have We probably have a way we can use you overseas with a specialty that you want to do, whether it's a kindergarten or whether it's an orphanage or whether it's planting crops or whatever it might be. There is a variety of work. Why? We will do almost anything to get into people's lives with the gospel of Christ. As you go, As you go, make disciples. As you wander about the community, you're making disciples. I've mentioned several times raising the odds. Some of you have heard this weird story before. I've told it at this church. We went to the graduation ceremony of high school grad where our kids had gone to high school in a boarding school. The speaker was a man we knew well with another mission group that we had worked very closely with through the years and knew him. He was a Ph.D. from Oxford, you know, and he taught us all kinds of things related to other customs and cultures when he would help other missionaries get settled. His son was in the graduating class, and they were sitting just right out in front of him and he was giving the speech that day at graduation. And he said, you kids are so lucky to get to grow up in Africa because strange things happen in Africa. Yeah, you know, they were all happy and they looked at one another and yeah, we were very fortunate. He said, "Back back in March, at the last school holiday, My son and all of us in the family went camping in a game park down in southern Tanzania that's really out of the way. In fact, I had never heard of the name of it. Very few cars ever in there. Pretty pretty large park. They camped for several days, took a lot of pictures, came back home, got back home unpacking, and realized they've lost a roll of film. They were just heartbroken. That's back when you had film. Y'all remember what that was? And they just didn't, you know, finally just threw up their hands and said, that's it. Well, that was in March. In May, a man and woman were driving through that game park, and they began to realize that there was a lioness running along beside their car about 30 or 40 yards over in the bush. And they watched this lioness and she began to get ahead of them and began moving toward the road. So they slowed down and stopped. And as she started across the road, they realized that she was chasing a hyena. And she caught the hyena right in the middle of the road. And she just attacked it, and she grabbed it and started tearing on this poor hyena. And she walked off, and the hyena's writhing there on the road, and they're watching from about 20 yards away. And she walks around and sits down and looks at the hyena and gets up again, and she wanders over to it, tears on it some more, sits down, looks at it. The hyena's still alive. Finally, she goes and kills it and walks off. And this man and woman are sitting there, and he says, what in the world? She said, "I know what it is." She was a game department person, an American, and she said, "That hyena has eaten a lion cub. And this mama is trying to catch that hyena that ate her baby. You watch. She got her knife out, she got out of the car, she walked up to the hyena, she cut its stomach open. It wasn't a cub. There was a roll of film. It came out of its stomach. She took that roll of film. She looked at it. She took it to uh, the the big city, Dar es Salaam, and got it developed and got the pictures back. And she said, well, I'll be. That's John Aronson and his family. And so John's giving this speech, and he calls his son up from the group, and he says, here are the pictures from the family vacation. Watch out. They've been in the stomach of a hyena. Now, what are the odds of that happening, folks? I've lived about forty years in Africa. I've been around lions an awful lot of the time. I have never seen a kill. What's the chances of seeing a kill? Well, the odds are obviously pretty high if I've never seen one. But what if, what if, what are the odds that a hyena gets killed in front of you that has in it a roll of film? And some woman in that car is crazy enough and has a knife and a purpose to go cut the hole in that stomach and take that film out and then get the film developed. What are the odds that she's going to know who's in the pictures? Yes, one in millions. You see, our job is to do every little thing along the way to raise the odds for someone to hear, to accept to believe, to become part of the family of God. And you know what? They will continue to multiply it. What do we do as a church? Let's raise the odds. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we'll be taking it soon. You know what? We've been giving about the same amount for the last 20 years, between twenty dollars and $30,000 back and forth each year. I challenge you, let's double it this year. Don't sit down and divide and say, well, let's see, if everybody in the room gave $50, I can give $50. Some of you can give $400. Some of you young folk are saying, well, wait, the adults do the giving. Don't let it go for that. Let's raise the odds so that everybody on this earth gets a chance to hear the gospel. As you go, You share. As you send, you share. And one other little piece, you've got to pray. Lord, open doors and send the right person. Even if it's me, I'll go. Let's pray together.